Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We find ourselves in chapter 14. Let's pick it up in verse 12, where Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, as we have been pointing out, these words were spoken by Jesus in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem the night before his crucifixion, as he and his disciples were celebrating the Passover together. That night, the Lord gives his true disciples. Remember now, Judas is already left by this point, uh, carrying out his betrayal of Christ. And so Jesus now focuses on his true disciples and uh, is giving them one last teaching before his death to encourage them for the difficult days that lay ahead. And the encouragement came in the form of some promises, some very important promises, in fact, I have named this message Great and Precious Promises. I took that title, of course, from what Peter said in the second epistle, that God has given to us as his people exceedingly great and precious promises. You know, the promises of God are basically twofold. Promises to us personally, in, in our own personal lives and things that, that uh, focus on our personal lives, and then promises that are directed... Uh, towards our work for the kingdom. We'll call them kingdom promises. Uh, personal promises are promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or out of Matthew 6, don't worry about your physical necessities. Your heavenly Father knows what you need to live and will provide those things for you. Those are personal promises, right? Kingdom promises are promises made to us by God and his word to supply us with whatever physical resources and supernatural power we need to do the work he is calling us to do in saving the lost. Now, just so you know, and that's why I bring this up, the promises Jesus gives to his disciples in John 14 are for the most part kingdom promises, all right? Before we look at these, uh, let me try to set the context one more time since it's critical if we're going to fully understand and appreciate the magnitude of the promises Jesus gave to his disciples that night. After being with them for over three years, he drops a bombshell on them in chapter 13, verse 33, when he said to them, I am going to be leaving you soon, and where I am going, you can't come with me. In saying that to his disciples, he was in essence telling them that they would have to carry on without him. They would have to carry on without him. That just because he was going away didn't mean that the work of the kingdom was going to stop. It was going to go forward. But here's what I imagine they thought immediately upon hearing this. The first thing that must have come to their mind was Jesus has the power. If Jesus goes away, the power goes with him. How are we going to carry on the work he wants us to do without the power of Jesus? Now, not only that, but I am convinced at various points in his ministry, he was preparing them for the fact that they were going to be taking the gospel to the whole world. I'm not sure he told them, though, I won't be going with you. 
you know how the Lord kind of leaves some of those details out. You're just not ready for them. You know, he said many other things I want to tell you, but you're not ready for it. The Holy Spirit comes, he'll fill you in. But, you know, I, I'm not quite sure he explained that to them, right? And, and so now he's going away. And not only would they have to continue on without him, guess what? The work would need to be now expanded beyond the, the borders of the land of Israel. Now, he made this official, of course. Again, he probably talked to, the, to them about this numerous times during his ministry. He made all of this official uh, by telling them right before he ascended back to his father after his resurrection, we call it the Great Commission, he said, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, upon telling them he was going to be leaving them soon, and they would have to continue the work of spreading the gospel and building God's kingdom uh, in his absence, I, I would imagine their hearts immediately gripped uh, them with fear, were gripped with fear. I know that uh, because of what he says in verse 1 of chapter 14. But can you imagine the Lord you know, telling them, look, uh, we've been together three and a half years, and by the way, I'm going away now. Uh, you can't go with me. Uh, I'll come back for you someday, right? Until then, carry on. Okay, Lord, right? Uh, I'm sure their hearts would immediately grip with fear. I mean, how could they ever carry on the vital work of spreading the gospel without Jesus being with them? I mean, how could they, as simple fishermen and farmers, we would call them uneducated blue-collar guys, how could they take the gospel to the centers of learning, sophistication, and culture like Athens and Alexandria and Rome and so on? Who would listen to them? And how would this even be possible? I'm sure they're thinking. All, all this must have flashed across their minds, overwhelming them in the moment, prompting Jesus, who of course knew their hearts, to say again, verse 1 of chapter 14, stop letting your hearts grip you with fear. And then he proceeds to allay their fears by once again reminding them of who he was. Now he had been telling them and anybody he listened to for three and a half years who he was. Right now, he's telling this man, look, I know I'm giving you some pretty momentous things to contemplate and eventually to carry out. But remember who I am. I am the great I am. I am God Almighty, second person of the Trinity. You believe in God, verse 1. Believe also in me. But then he, of all the promises he made to them that evening, one of the biggest and most incredible of all of them was when he said, and I'm paraphrasing out of verses 16 through 18, I won't really be gone from you. When I return to my father, I will ask him to send back to you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will re remain with you forever. I will not leave you alone like orphans. Verse 18, this is a blockbuster. I will come to you. Now, we'll have a lot more to say about that starting next week, okay? Um, but for right now, this morning, before we really look at um, this, these promises that Jesus was uh, going to be giving them, uh, he prefaced, prefaced it by saying, verses 12 to 14, let me read them again to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. 
and greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. In these verses, Jesus gave them two incredible promises. Incredible promises. He promised his disciples, and of course, by extension, all of his church. First of all, they would do greater works than he had done. And number two, they would receive anything they prayed for in his name. Remarkable. Let's just look at the first one. And let's just call it the promise of great works, verse 12. Jesus begins his promise in verse 12 with the words, Most assuredly, I say to you. Now, if you've been studying John with us for a while, you realize that's an important statement. Most assuredly, I say to you. Uh, It's most assuredly in my new King James. The King James uh, translates it verily, verily. NASB, truly, truly. NIV, very truly. You get the idea it's important, don't you? Here's what Jesus is saying, and I'll paraphrase it. Listen up and don't miss this. What's coming is very important. You've got to hear not just with your ears, but with your heart. You've got to listen carefully and accept what I'm about to tell you. Because, of course, it's totally true. Jesus never said anything. It wasn't true, right? Most assuredly, I say to you. So listen up. Very important. First of all, he who believes in me. Let me stop there. When it comes to answered prayer or success in ministry, it all starts with relationship, a relationship with Jesus. You know, as I was talking to first service, I was telling them that there are many people in this country that grew up in church. Maybe they went to Awanas or to Sunday school for years. And they've been introduced to Jesus. They know Jesus. They know who he is, of course. And maybe in a sense, they have spent years dating Jesus, quote-unquote. What does that mean? Well, they come to church and hang out with Jesus, kind of the way you would hang out with somebody you're dating, okay? Um, but there's a lot of folks that, uh, that you know, know who Jesus is. They think he's wonderful. Uh, he's my Savior. And they know the gospel, right? But they've never taken their relationship with Christ to the next level where they have made a commitment to him. That's why in the New Testament... Uh, it talks about saving faith being uh, a commitment, and it likens it to a marriage commitment. Again, before you married your spouse, you dated, of course. I don't know how long it took you to realize, hey, this is a pretty special person. I think I could spend the rest of my life with this person, right? And so you dated, and that was beginning that, that, that understanding of this person and how you could be married to them for the rest of your life began to dawn on you, and uh, but you wanted to be sure, so no doubt you uh, you kept dating for a while. I don't know how long, but you kept dating. At one point, you took your relationship to the next level. You stood before a pastor or minister, justice of the peace, with friends and family there, and you entered into a commitment with each other. We call it marriage. You even signed a legal document claiming that you had made this commitment to one another. You see, that's what brings us into Christ. That's what makes us a Christian. Folks, the devil is as orthodox as anybody in this room. As a Roman Catholic, everything I know about Jesus today, I knew back then. 
I believed he was the son of God. I believed he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose the third day from the dead. I knew he was the only way to heaven. Everything I believed about Christ then, I believe now, but I wasn't saved back then. Just like Satan and his demons aren't saved, and, and they believe everything I just told you. They were there to see it. Him being born, growing, working miracles, dying on the cross, stepping from the tomb the third day alive. So what's, what was the difference between me back in my Catholic days or the demons uh, today who believe and tremble, James tells us, in who Jesus is? The difference was commitment. Commitment. I'm convinced there's a lot of folks who are going to spend eternity in hell who are not atheists. They were not agnostics. They were people that went to church, read the Bible. They knew who Jesus was. They believed with their heads who he was. But they never took it to that next level and made a commitment where they said, Lord, I believe who you are. I believe what you did for me. Now, come into my heart. Be one with me. I want to make a commitment to you. Again, the Bible likens it to a marriage. A lot of folks are going to be in hell who don't understand that head knowledge is important as that is. We've we got to know the gospel intellectually. But that information won't save us if we leave it there, right? I mean, guys, relationship is the key. It's the commitment that puts you in Christ that establishes the relationship by which you are now a child of God. Relationship changes everything. I was telling First Service that 43 years ago, my family moved from Elk Grove, which is just right here, um, into Schaumburg. A month earlier, as I found out later, another family moved from the city, uh, and they moved, we moved right next door to them. Didn't know who they were. I didn't, it didn't take me long to figure out. There was a pretty cute girl that lived in that house, uh, you know, and I wanted to get to know her, and we, we started to talk and eventually started to date. Now, my in-laws are Italian. So whenever I would go over to see Cindy, they would always say, come on in, have something to eat, come on. You know, Italians are, I love them, right? I couldn't do it. Oh, come on, you gotta have something to eat, right? And at their invitation, I would take them up on that. Now look, as wonderful as, and as hospitable as they were, I couldn't just walk over to their house, open the door, walk in, make a sandwich, sit down, start watching television. There are laws that protect you from neighbors like that. But then one day, I stood with their daughter before God, family, and friends, and I made a commitment to her and she to me. That blended or connected our two families as one today or any day after that i could walk into their house make a sandwich sit down and watch tv and they wouldn't say a word because you know what family has its privileges relationship is important it changes everything guys until you could i don't care if you were raised in church or went to awanas or what it was that's fine but until you can say and mean it with all your heart my Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Until you can say and really mean it, because you have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, until you can say, my Father, the rest of that prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, doesn't apply to you. 
But if you've received Jesus into your heart to be your Savior, you are now a child of God. You belong to the family of God. And as such, all the promises in the New Testament apply to you. They're yours. All you have to do is receive them and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and, and walk in them by faith. Again, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. What did Jesus mean when he said that, that his disciples would do greater works than he did? I mean, how is that possible? I mean, think about it. Jesus walked on water. He cast out demons. He opened the eyes of the blind. He healed the lame. He fed thousands with a few scraps of food. He even raised the dead. I mean, how could it be possible for Jesus' disciples to do greater works than those? How would it be possible for us as his disciples to ever top what Jesus did? Well, we aren't going to top what Jesus did, and that's not what he's promising here. He didn't mean we will do greater works than he did in the sense of more sensational. You can't get more sensational than raising the dead. He was talking about greater works in the sense of scope or magnitude. The key statement that unlocks the true interpretation of what Jesus is saying here are the words, because I go to my Father. Let me read it to you again. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. What did Jesus promise he would do when he returned to his Father? Well, you don't have to look far. It's in verses 16 and 17. When I go back to the Father, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. This promise that Jesus' that Jesus' disciples would do greater works than he did during his earthly ministry, listen, is tied to the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world once Jesus returned back to his Father. Look, when Jesus was on the earth physically, he was limited by a physical body to one place at a time. So he could only be in the Galilee at one time, or in Jerusalem at one time, or Jericho. He couldn't be in all those places at once, right? Now you have to understand, God is a spirit. He's an, um, he is an omnipresent spirit, which means his presence is everywhere. But when God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he took on a human body. And, and that brought limitations to him. As God incarnate, now he had a physical body. He was not omnipresent. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. All the things that we are subjected to in our humanness, he also was, uh, was subjected to. He was tempted in every way possible, the Bible says, like we're tempted. Only he was tempted one person in every way that we could possibly be tempted, but he never sinned. He never sinned. But God is a spirit, John 4. He's an omnipresent spirit. But again, when Jesus became a man, he took on the limitations of a man. But when Jesus returned to his Father and the Holy Spirit was sent back in his place, we read about that on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit came from heaven, he would now then indwell every believer in Christ spread out throughout the face of the planet Earth, and together we would be believers from all four corners of the Earth, together making one body, the body of Christ. 
that once the Holy Spirit took up residence in every believer, uh, the body of Christ would be, again, scattered throughout the world, be in many places, and because of that would do many more works that Jesus could do, limited to a body in one place at a time. Now, of course, the body of Christ would have no limits in the extent, the magnitude of how it could reach people on this planet, which means at this very moment, you know, Jesus is in California. <laughs> it's something to think about. But he's in Illinois. We're not much better. He's also in New York and in Florida, but he's also in China, New Zealand, Europe, Australia. You get the idea. And he's everywhere that his body is, where there's anywhere there's believers in Christ, they are members of his body. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are reaching people. Jesus is working. I will come to you, verse 18, right? I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Very important that we understand that the work of God is taking place throughout the world. God is building his kingdom. You've got brothers and sisters in places you don't even know how to pronounce their name. Me too. But God knows who they are. God loves them. And the Bible says clearly that someday we're all going to be rejoicing around the throne of God, every person, family, language, tongue, person of every nation. God's going to have people from all over the world who will be with us in heaven praising him. He's not a respecter of persons. He's lo he loves everybody. All right, so first of all, the promise of great work. Secondly, the promise of answered prayer. Verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, before we look at this, please take note that the word and at the beginning of verse 13 ties verses 13 and 14 with verse 12. In other words, Jesus is saying that the works he is promising to do through his church in verses 13 and 14 are directly tied to and built upon prayer. Prayer. It says, James said in James 4, 2, you have not because you what? You ask not. You want things from God? Ask him. Okay. Some people get mad that God hasn't worked in their life. Well, have you asked him? Well, no, I don't pray. Well, then what are you complaining about? <laughs> no, it's, what, do you want me, what do you want from me? You know? God's mean. God, God, God doesn't ever do anything for me. Have you ever asked it for anything? Well, no. Well, then, you know, James 4, 2. But what about this statement, verses 13 and 14? I mean, it seems like an incredible thing for Jesus to have promised us. I mean, how, how are we to understand it? I mean, there are many Christians who understand it this way because this is how they were taught in their churches or from some guy on TV at 2 in the morning when they can't sleep, and there's some TV preacher on there, right? There are many Christians who have been taught that this promise is a blank check, just waiting for us to fill in the amount and cash it through faith. So no matter what it is, a new car, new house, health, wealth, whatever you desire, all you have to do is ask for it in Jesus' name, and he will give it to you. It's an ironclad promise, they say. And if you don't receive the health or the prosperity, it's because you've got a lack of faith. It's not my lousy theology. It's your lousy faith. Not that I'm wrong, you know. 
Hey, they got a wire. They can't lose. If you're blessed, it was me. If you're not, it was you. Either way, I'm untouchable, right? Now, if you don't get the Cadillacs and the houseboats and the summer homes, it's not that you don't have a lack of faith necessarily, and it's not that God is not fulfilling a promise. But James 4.3 comes into play. And even when you do ask, you don't get because of your motives, because your motives are all wrong. You only want what you're asking for for your own personal pleasure. To properly understand what Jesus is really saying in John 14, verses 13 and 14, we need to understand two things. First of all, to whom was Jesus speaking when he gave this promise? All right. Remember, guys, context is everything when it comes to properly interpreting anything in God's word, especially when it comes to a promise he has given. And so once again, to whom was Jesus speaking when he gave this promise that whatever you ask in my name, I will do for you. I'll make sure you get it. Was he talking to the multitudes? No. He was talking to his disciples there in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had laid out the cost of being one of his disciples. I'll just read it to you. You know it. Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone desires to be my disciple, listen. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those three criteria. If you, if you can't be a disciple unless you meet those three criteria. Deny yourself. The idea is to deny yourself your goals your desires to live for God's glory and for the building of his kingdom. And yet, why aren't we seeing more of that today? What's going on that when you turn on the radio or TV, so many preachers, so many pastors don't are not really stressing that? They're, 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 they, they might be wearing a cross. They're not preaching the cross. What's going on? It's as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, that in the last days... People in churches now, he's not talking about the world. The world's never wanted to hear sound doctrine. People in the church in the last days would not, no longer want to hear sound doctrine. That's healthy teaching from God's word. But instead would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears, tell them what they, would, what they want to hear, not what, the, what God says, but what they want to hear. And they would turn away from the truth and be turned to myths, to myths. You know, I was, I was telling for a service that we're in the last days, obviously, and there's a lot of heresy in the churches. A lot of uh, Hinduism, actually, that's been Christianized. You don't, people don't realize it, but it is, right? Do you know one of the major uh, tenets of the Word of Faith movement is that uh, you're all gods? All, all Christians are gods. How, how do they come to that conclusion? Here's what they say. When a dog has children, what does the dog have? Little dogs. When a cat has children, what does the cat have? Little cats. When God has children, what does God have? Little gods. Now that's important to their theology because even as God in Genesis 1 spoke this, spoke that, and things came into existence, right? You're little gods. You are children of God. You are gods. In the same power that indwelt the mouth of God when he spoke, there's power in words, what's well, called the word of faith, positive confession. 
The same power that resides in God resides in you. You're little gods, his children. And so you need to speak your health into existence. You need to speak your mansion into existence and your twin Mercedes, his and hers, into existence. We are living in the last days. Isn't it remarkable how the devil has taken evil and tried to turn it into good and many have bought into it? I, th I think we would say with a clear mind, um, abject selfishness, greed, uh, materialism, that's, that's evil, right, for Christians. Oh, no, 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 no it's, that's good. I've heard them say um, it's not godly or humble for a Christian to be driving, I, I don't know, what's a small, insignificant, I used to say Nova, but I don't think they make Novas anymore, do they? <laughs> A, a Volkswagen bug. It's not humble for you to drive a Volkswagen bug. You should be driving a Cadillac because it dishonors your father. You want your kids driving an old jalopy? No, you want them to have the best. The father wants you to have the best. So go out there and claim your Cadillac or put the money down for a down payment by faith. God will take care of the payments. Really? Yeah. Yeah. How, see how well that works out. God, not coming through with his promises again. Right. But anyways, but this is the mind. We are in the last days. Everything has been turned upside down. Evil is good. Good is evil. It's even coming to the church. So to be to, to live modestly and humbly, that, that's wrong. That's evil. You're not being a good Christian. Not a good example. To live a palatial, palatial estate and Throwing money around, that's good because you're showing people that God blesses his kids. Look, being a disciple of Christ isn't about all these material things. It's a life of self-denial and service to Jesus as our king. This means that we must abandon all selfish desires and goals. Now, not all your goals, will say, are overtly selfish. But if any goal that's designed just to affect you and bless you, that is not something that is God-centered. It's, it's self-centered. I'm not saying it's, it's overtly sinful. I'm just saying it's not, it's not God-centered. And we're talking about a disciple of Christ. It, ha it has to be Christ-centered, right? It means we abandon our, all our selfish desires and goals and only seek, that only seek, to use God, to get material things. A lot of folks come to church because they've been taught they can use God to get whatever I need, you know? And really, it's not about loving God. It's not about dying to self and, and really wanting just to follow Jesus to build his kingdom. It's all about God building my kingdom on the earth. And I can, I'm using God to do that uh, and so on. But a true disciple isn't going to be seeking after personal riches. His or her prayers will be for the glory of God, not the glory of self. Secondly, take up your cross. The cross was a symbol of death. To take up one's cross not only means to die to self, it also means to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. It is the willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom for his sake. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you honestly, and I talk to a lot of pastors 
the majority of people that fill seats and pews in churches across this country are not of this mindset. Uh, they really aren't. God love them. If they've really accepted Christ, they're saved. But they are languishing in a very in a spiritual wilderness because they, they are, are trying to, they, they've, they've come to Christ because I need something. My life is just, I need Jesus. I need other people in my life. I, need, I don't have any friends. I need Christians. Great. Wonderful. We all need Jesus. And we all need the body of Christ. But Jesus can't be a side issue. Jesus can't be, you know, someone that's going to just fill your life with all kinds of blessings. That's really not the life of a disciple. I'm not saying you're, you can't be saved if you have kind of a carnal walk. Uh, the Corinthians were carnal, but they were still saved. But I'm talking about being a disciple of Christ. There are a lot of folks, they're just not there. You talk about, I, I talked to a pastor, he said, this Sunday we were in the, the text where we, we're actually studying right now. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ. He said, and I preached it because that's where we were in our study. And I knew that that's what God wanted me to teach. But honestly, I felt like I was talking to the walls. Because I know as a pastor, there's so, so many Christians are not of that mindset. Die to self. Take up my cross. What is that all about? It's all about what God's going to do for them. Not really what they're going to lay down to do for him. Taking up one's cross means denying ourselves and be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake, even if it means martyrdom. The cross represents the suffering that is ours once we accept Christ and have really entered into a relationship with him. I think one pastor put it well. He said, and I quote, Christ does not call disciples to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous, but to make them holy and productive. Willingness to take up one's cross is the mark of, true, of a true disciple. As the hymnist wrote, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. He goes on, those who make, who make initial confession of their desire to follow Jesus but refuse to accept hardship or persecution are characterized as the false fruitless souls who are like rocky soil with no depth. They wither and die under threat of the reproach of Christ. He's quoting Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. He ends by saying, many people want to know cost discipleship, but Christ offers no such option, end quote. In other words, you can't be a Christian and have a crossless Christianity. A crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. And a Christless Christianity won't save anybody. And then number three, you want to be my disciple? Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow, excuse me, follow me. A true disciple is following in the steps of Jesus. They are living the life that he lived. Not perfectly, of course. I'm not saying as Jesus' disciples, we never step off the right path. We never... Uh, you know, get involved with a sin here and there. I'm just saying, though, that overall, our lives should be going in the direction Jesus is going, especially when he was here on the earth. Jesus himself said, and I quote, I haven't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And also, I haven't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give my life a ransom for many. You know, John said in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 6, he who says he abides in him. In other words, he who says that he's a Christian, that's the idea, also ought to walk just as Jesus walked. I mean, if you're really a Christian, then you're going to go in the direction Jesus is going, right? Didn't he say that in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they what? Follow me. They follow me. Somebody who claims to be a Christian but is not following Jesus is not really a Christian. Now, I, we can all backslide, get off the beaten track. I know that. I'm talking about somebody, though, who professes to, to know Jesus, grew up in church maybe, and was walking in the same general direction Jesus was walking for a while and then made a major detour at one point, renounced the faith, no longer doesn't believe in Christianity, doesn't want any part of it. Maybe they're now a Muslim or a, or a Buddhist or something else or an atheist. It's like my pastor told the story. He said, look, if you're walking down the street and across the street there was a guy walking and about 10 feet behind the guy there was this little puppy walking behind him, you'd be prone to look at that and go, well, that's, that man is the dog's master because the dog is following the man, right? So you walk a little farther and all of a sudden the man turns the corner and starts walking down another street, but the little dog keeps walking straight. Then you realize, well, no, he just looked like the dog was you know, the, that man was the dog's master because the dog was, excuse me, <coughs> my throat today, was following in that direction for a while. But then when the man turned the corner, the little dog kept going straight. So a lot of Christians, a lot of people who have grown up in church, that, that's, the, that's the testimony of their life. And I've seen more and more. I, I'm reading about it all the time. How you got people that are now in ministry that have renounced the faith, uh, top Christian musicians no longer believe in Christ, have walked away. Um, you see it everywhere. Are they backslidden? I don't know. I hope so. I hope they're not apostates who have shown their true colors and have walked away for good. Look, Jesus' whole life was wrapped up in glorifying his Father through obedience and manifesting his father's character to the people of this world. That's really what he was all about. A true disciple of Jesus will have the same passion, same passionate desire to glorify God through obedience and manifesting his character. And I'm talking about primarily God's love. God's love is a powerful thing. And once we get saved, God pours his love into our hearts. Romans 5 verse 5. And now we can share that love with this world. But it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take not rising up to want to retaliate when somebody does you wrong. It's all about letting the Holy Spirit live through you. Uh, Jesus living through you. And uh, forgiving those who have wronged you and so on. Let me just move to the last point and we'll close. To whom was Jesus speaking when he gave this promise? That's number one. Number two, what does it mean to ask for things in Jesus' name? That's a big one, okay? Again, verses 13 and 14, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Asking in Jesus' name is not some kind of magic phrase that, you know, energizes our prayers. 
So that, and it then guarantees that whatever came before those magic words, well, it will be answered, right? No matter how selfish or outlandish the request. Once you pray it to God and then tack on in Jesus' name at the end, you're in. You, this is an ironclad promise, they tell us, right? At least guys on TV. This is an ironclad, you can ask, didn't Jesus tell you that? Didn't he say, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he would do for you. So pray whatever you need. Pray what, you know, your desires and then just at the end of the prayer, add Jesus in Jesus' name. And it's a sure thing. That, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous theology. You know, see, in the Jewish mind, to ask for something in someone else's name meant to ask for something, listen, as their representative. Something that they would have asked for if they had been there in person. It would be something that was in harmony with their character and personality. For in the Jewish mind, the concept of name spoke of nature, character. Remember when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go? And Moses said, well, I don't even know your name. Who should I tell him is sending me? What's your name, Lord? And God says, Moses, my name is, and then he tells him his character. My name is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. You can read all of that out of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Interesting, because in the Jewish mind, the name, of course, his literal name was Yahweh. But in the Jewish mind, a person's name is really who he is, who he was. I mean, his character, his nature, so on. To ask for something in Jesus' name means I'm standing in his place and asking for what he would have asked for if he was here physically on the earth, especially when it comes to the work of God's kingdom. Think of it this way. I'm praying, Father, uh, we need this for the work of the kingdom. Uh, we have these needs, Father, and we're trying to you know, reach the community with uh, maybe a food pantry. And so, uh, Father, we need uh, a building, and we need people that will get behind it. And, and, and we're asking this in Jesus' name as a way of reaching out to people and, 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 and seeing them come to Christ. And we know we're on solid ground because Jesus himself worried about uh, the hungry when he was on the earth. And he fed people to, to then give them the gospel and so on. And so, Father, we believe we're praying in Jesus' name. In other words, we're asking you for this. It's consistent with who Jesus is, his character. I mean, guys, if Jesus wouldn't have asked for it, we better not ask for it either. And Jesus would never have asked for anything material for himself. Can you imagine Jesus asking for designer robes and sandals? A Mercedes chariot. I don't know what they were going for back then. You know? Look, and we're done. I, I just want to mention, I was talking to the first service. We were talking about the cross, and I forgot to mention it. How that, to be a disciple of Christ, we have to take up the cross. Somewhere along the line, we have turned that into a fashion statement. Be a disciple, Jesus, you got to wear a cross. If you're wearing a cross, don't worry about that. It's fine. Because I know people in this room, that cross means something to you. 
But for a lot of people in our country, they wear a cross, and it means nothing. It's a, it's a fashion statement. Well, I was telling them that we had two guys in the church, and they were uh, uh, taking a bike ride uh, one day in the, in the spring a few years ago. And it started to rain, so they quickly got under a bridge uh, to wait for the rain to stop. You know, they're talking. And here comes another young guy runs under the, under the bridge to escape the uh, rain. And uh, he had a big cross, one of these big ones, hanging from his neck. And so I got to talking, and the one guy was talking, they were giving their testimonies. How the one guy said, I was in prison, and this and that, my life was in turmoil, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, and as he's talking, the young guy said, well, what changed you? He said, that symbol you're wearing around your neck, only you're wearing it for a fashion statement. For me, it was life-changing. I've never been the same because of what you're wearing around your neck. Jesus died in that cross. And when we put our faith in him, we have new He makes us new creations. I'm not the same person I was. I'm not either. If you're a Christian here this morning, you know what I'm talking about. Don't leave here thinking I'm saying that you can't pray for your own needs. That we only ask God for things for his glory and the building of his kingdom. If you're a child of God, he loves you. You belong to him. And if you're out of work and you can't pay the rent or you need food, you pray. It's not selfish. Those are needs, right? And when God meets those needs and he's promised he will do it. He's glorified. Because what father isn't glorified in a sense, held in high esteem when he does whatever he has to to provide for his kids? God loves us. We're his children. And when we pray that God would provide our basic necessities, that's not, you know, Jesus said, your father, John, uh, Matthew 6, your father knows that you need things to live, food, clothing, shelter, and so on. He fully intends to provide all that. And it's okay to pray about it. Just don't live at the level of the physical. Seek first the kingdom of God. Elevate yourself to a higher level of existence. You've, you... Uh, Seek God's kingdom. That, you make that your, your goal in life, to build his kingdom. And everything else you need in the physical to live, he'll take care of it. So it's okay to pray for your needs, okay? Because God is honored when that happens. I'm just saying, and, and I'll end with this. Context is everything, right? Jesus has just told these guys, I'm leaving you soon. You can't come with me. Well, you're going to have to carry on the work of the kingdom. Well, how is that going to happen? I mean, we, Jesus got the power. How are we going to do that? Who's going to listen to us? We're just simple, you know, fishermen from the Galilee. So Jesus comes back by saying, look, whatever you need for the work of the kingdom, because I'm not going to be here physically with you, so you can ask the Father in my name. You're representing me. Whatever you need to do the work I'm commanding or calling you to do, you ask the Father in my name. I'll make sure you get what you need. 
The promise is all about the work of the kingdom. It's not about Cadillacs and boats and summer houses and whatever else people want to stick in there. As if Jesus is giving them carte blanche to ask anything they want and just tack on Jesus' name at the end. It's like a magic formula, boom, like a, a stamp on an envelope, shoot it up to heaven, and I'm going to get everything I've asked for because I put Jesus' name on the end of it. That is absolutely untrue. It's carnal. It's not the heart of a true disciple who is only concerned about God's glory, God's kingdom. In the process, whatever I need, he's taken care of. But we need to focus on the kingdom. That's what's important, right? So we will continue with these great and precious promises. I'm telling you, they're incredible. And we'll pick it up next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your, your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for your great and precious promises, Lord. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. And give us grace, Lord, to be true disciples. So much carnality and selfishness in the body of Christ, Lord. Give us grace to uh, die to self, focus on you, and begin to live the life that you lived on the earth, a life of selflessness and denial and, and always doing what pleased the Father. That's actually the only life that brings happiness and fulfillment. So, Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.